You're listening to OEA Grow, a member-led production of the Oregon Education Association and a proud member of the Labor Radio Podcast Network. OEA Grow is by members for members. In season six, educators discuss student-centered curriculum with Janoj Cotter. Right. Today, my guest on the OEA Grow podcast is Tana Shepard. So great to have you. Thank you for making it to the podcast. The basic idea here is to provide Oregon teachers with context and ideas about how to move forward on different issues being encountered by OEA members. For this season of the podcast, the focus is on student-centered learning and curriculum. To get started, would you please (laughs) tell us a bit about yourself and how you have served Oregon students? Sure. Um, So my name is Tiana Shepard, and I am currently a K-12 teacher on special assignment for climate, energy, and conservation in Eugene 4J. Um, This is my 20th year of teaching in 4J and in Oregon and overall. And I was kind of a late bloomer, so I got into teaching in my 30s, um, thinking I would shake up the system. So here I am. Um, And so, but before this position, and by the way, it's been six years in my new role, um, my main duties in this role are, um, right now I'm in salmon education all of fall. I help um, our district move waste management issues forward. So currently food waste is a big project, um, K-12 and all all the schools. And then I do alternative energy things and all kinds of other different things that come up with um, teacher interest. And so currently climate change is, you know, kind of a hot topic, (laughs) no pun intended. Um, And then before this, though, I was an elementary teacher at um, a high poverty school, Chavez Elementary here in Eugene, for about 14 years. And um, you know, being a kid that grew up <clears throat> in situational poverty, I really, it helped me connect with the students there. And so I was really able to do, really take them a long way and do some pretty cool projects with them over time. So that's kind of my nutshell. Very cool. So glad to have you here. Um, so thinking back on your um current role or previous roles in education, two decades is a long time. What are one or two examples of how you found yourself being reflected in the curriculum as a student? And does that inform the approach that you bring forward serving Oregon students? Yeah, so I had the opportunity to be in our system in like a heyday in the 70s and and 80s. So um, I guess my biggest thing is that I just... I had a teacher, um, and it was a male teacher. So having uh, growing up in a single parent household without male influence, that was very important. And so I had John Pune as my teacher for three years, actually, and he introduced us to outdoor school, and that totally changed my life. Um, also, a big thing that he was very interested in the environment then, and it got us hooked in. And so it was the save the whales time of environmentalism. And so I just got really super involved with that sort of thing as a young kid at like the age of 10. And that's just always been a part of me. Um, I guess a a really, you know, yeah, it was just more about at that time, everybody had an individual plan. So like if you were a really high reader or whatever, you got to be in a book club or there were just all kinds of things that were 
fitting the niche of the learners. So we each really were getting what we needed from our teacher and from the curriculum. And so I guess, yeah, it just, school was my safe place. And so um, it really, yeah, it just affected me. And frankly, I, I guess just being at my 30th high school reunion, having my classmates that shared that teacher with me tell me, sounds like you're kind of a little bit like Mr. Pune. It was like, yes. So it kind of, um, he really rubbed off on me in a great way. And it definitely informs how I connect with students just with, through humor and really getting to know them. So then I can really be reaching whoever is really in front of me, not a generic, like I'm checking all the boxes of all the different things. So, so it, I guess too, with that sort of teaching that was happening in um, the 70s, because I also went to Roosevelt um, middle or junior high then in the heyday. And that was phenomenal, actually. Um, that was my best three years of my entire um, educational experience clear through my master's degree because it was all about mm -hmm. choice. And so that's something that I really bring to, and I'm kind of going back and forth between my own and to my current. But I think that having choice as a learner, it just makes you have ownership over your learning and you care about it more. And so if you're getting to learn about the things that you care about and you get to pick those things, it's very impactful. And that's really kind of how Mr. Pune led me into my Roosevelt experience. And um, yeah, I mean, taking mean jeans or all these different cool Steinbeck and Hemingway or whatever I was interested in, I could just go run around the gym and put my card in the box that I wanted. So um, Death and Dying was an amazing class. So just really mm. um, some of the perspective building that helped me just be a, a really open-minded, forward-thinking person is what my, I experienced. So I felt, I felt really fortunate for that, actually. So didn't talk a lot about curriculum or anything, but it really, I guess my, my main line in education is choice. So yeah. Cool. So that uh, Roosevelt Junior High is uh, here in our uh, Eugene Forge community for listeners who might be wondering which Roosevelt we're referring to. And Mr. Pune was your teacher at that school? He was actually, it was at Parker Elementary when Parker was still open. And then he ended up at Roosevelt, like as a sixth grade science teacher later after my time. But I, I kind of think, I'm thinking back, like, I think we were his first class. Like he started out as a sub and then kind of just stuck with our, our school. But then um, clearly, science was his passion, as mine is too, and so he moved into a role that suited that. So, yeah. And, and, and an interesting part of that um, that listeners might be curious about is uh, you said kind of running around putting your name in the different boxes. So it used to be the case at Roosevelt Junior High that when you were signing up for elective classes, in particular, there was a gym full of um, empty boxes with little slits in them or open at the top and students and each each box represented a different elective class as I understand let me know yep. after well, actually every class it was every class oh, okay. so you even signed up for your math you had to balance your own schedule so you had to be very responsible so that program was not necessarily for every learner, but for me, it was awesome because tag didn't exist, but I'm, you know, whatever, I'm tag, I'm a tag adult. And so that just really worked. But we would, you would literally be running to get your top choice and it was in order. So they made it so that the cards were in a stack. And if they got to the number that was closed and you had to go find something else and and that was just, it was very competitive, but it was also just like super awe-inspiring to just be 
literally like, I need this class as, you know, a 12 to you know, 15 year old. So that was pretty. And by the way, we were seventh through ninth in junior high then. And that model mm. changed when I was in high school. So I sound so yeah. ancient when I'm talking about this, our system has changed. <laughs> no, it, it's interesting to think about um, the structures we mm-hmm. and our students find ourselves in and how, what, what it gets um, limited and what gets invited by exactly. the structure that we find ourselves. in. yeah, it's hard to imagine an open box run around the room to put your name in different boxes and hope that it shows up on your schedule, that system coming back, but that that's in our living memory and part of what inspires our approach to choice and Mm -hmm. student opportunity and uh, how to meet student interests is, is pretty interesting to consider. And I think the trust that was involved, trusting that the students would be making the right choices and figuring out what they needed and, um, I find that sometimes we are micromanaging so much that the kids don't always have to think for themselves about these kinds of things. So that was definitely like an extreme example of choice, but, um, but it definitely is something that I was able to, you know, learn from and provide to my students in my elementary classroom. Cool. Thanks for sharing all that. Mm -hmm. So thinking on, um, some your current practice mm-hmm. um, and considering kind of this, this prompting from me, um, for me, place-based ethnic studies and or climate change education are top of mind when I envision student-centered curriculum or learning experiences. Of course, all those could be overlapping. I'm curious, does place-based ethnic studies and or climate change education sur- surface in your work and how so? Um, yeah, uh, it definitely does, and it has over my time. Um, being a lifelong person that's lived in the city that's currently called Eugene, um, I place-based learning is super important to me. I think that um, being in the same place for my whole life, which is kind of unique, um, just lends itself to learning more about where you are and what's happening there and what's always happened there or what happened that we don't talk about or those kinds of things. And so I think that um, connecting students to place in particular um, can help them understand the ethnic studies part and the climate aspects of the community that they live in. And I feel like offering those skills to students in the place that they're currently learning can help them expand that to caring about the places that they journey off to in their lives. Um, so we can, you know, prepare them to really be noticing it, like for, for instance, in my role, you know, energy sources. So like here in Oregon, hydropower is clean and awesome and accessible and controversial, of course, but, um, but every place that you live there, you might have to make a different choice about your energy source based on the type of climate that you're living in. And so I think that, um, yes, it's all intersected and I'd really love to see us moving forward with, um, you know, sprinkling in these ideas into every subject at all times, just whenever. So frankly, lately, I've been using maps a lot on my salmon field trips to have students be aware of where we are on the planet. And then, you know, definitely including land acknowledgement to the peoples of this place. Um, And so, yeah, it's all connected I, in, in my mind, I know sometimes um, it could be a stretch, I guess, to fit that all in. But ultimately, <clears throat> it's all about 
humanity on the planet. And so, um, yeah, that's kind of where I'm at with that, I guess. Yeah. Well, um, could you talk a little bit more about the salmon education you do? I mean, that's pretty, um, intensely place-based, like you're taking students to places to encounter their local ecosystem in ways that they probably haven't before. And so can you elaborate a little bit more on like what those experiences are like for students and how you see them connecting with those? Yeah. So um, essentially the salmon education program that my, I, I, um, I'm the coordinator of the 4J eWeb education partnership in 4J. And so um, essentially Students are learning about the importance of keystone species through um, raising Chinook salmon in their classrooms. I have 63 tanks out across the district, and we're wrapping up this week, actually, as we speak. We're releasing, I mean, not at this exact second, but today I'll be leaving here to go release salmon with students. So um, they're learning um, essentially what a keystone species is and what happens to the ecosystem if that disappears ways that we can actually prevent that from happening or actually adapt to that already happening because we're already kind of in a dire state with salmon. Um, But we, so they're raising the salmon in the classroom from egg to the fry stage. So they're seeing three different stages of development in their classroom. And then we release them into the park here that does connect to their um, natal stream, which is the Willamette River. Um, but then we take the kids out to a site that's out by um, Blatchley, Oregon, near Triangle Lake, and it's called Lake Creek. And there's um, waterfall there and everything, but it is a river. It is connected to the Sayuslaw River that the mouth of that river is in Florence, Oregon. So that's where the salmon are coming, you know, g- leaving Lake Creek, going out to the ocean for three to five years coming back to that same stream. In fact, this year, I really like to think that some of the eggs that were there my first year doing the job might have been the salmon coming back this year, Mm -hmm. which was pretty cool to share with the kids. And the idea that the salmon are about the age of a third grader, which they found really exciting because I'm standing out there with third and fourth graders usually, so they can really connect to that. But just helping them understand, um, you know, the peoples from that place and that they were there, but they're still there and just kind of land use over time and, and how different land use can affect the stream. So in particular with logging and landslides and things like that. Um, but also not putting a negative spin on any of those industries because, you know, livelihood is important in Oregon and we all do what we do. And, you know, that's just, I want to honor those things, but also bring to light, you know, what can actually happen to the species because of our human impact. So, so yeah, connecting them to that place and um, seeing, you know, spawning salmon actually spawning right literally three feet in front of them in the creek is pretty impressive. And then connecting that to their experience with what's happening in their tank. Um, and in fact, mm-hmm. I'd have to say that at this point, you know, this program's been around for well over 25 years um, in 4J and across our state, actually. And many of the parents that are on the field trips now remember doing it as students. And mm-hmm. and actually, too, another cool thing is parents on the release trips this week um, that are volunteering are saying things like, we don't really get a lot of talk about school at home, but we're getting a lot of talk about this. And so I, it just is you know, basically proof that 
place-based education and getting kids out of the building and also bringing something cool and for them to study over time is really impactful. And, um, and I have to admit, as a classroom teacher, I did this as a classroom teacher. And so when this role came up, I was like, oh, yeah, heck yeah, I'm in. So um, yeah, so that's kind of just really getting kids out into our ecosystem so that they can see and then also helping them understand that everything is connected and we are connected to that and we can affect it in lots of different ways, positively and negatively. Yeah, no, that's that's really cool. And um, something I always found really gratifying working with students was trying to craft what would potentially be a lifelong memory for them to return to kind of an anchor point yes. and a positive one. Yes, <laughs> and um, I think this, this certainly serves um, that. And you, you mentioned earlier, you weren't quite sure if you're hitting climate change, place space and ethnic studies, but with those references to how um, you can understand salmon as a keystone species. And um, since time immemorial, mm-hmm. a keystone species um, that various, you know, dozens, hundreds of indigenous populations, communities have been in relationship with. Um, and still are. And all, yeah. And still are. Yeah. That, that, um, that's a, a really um, on, on point example. So thank you. Of course. Um, when you look back on your career, you mentioned earlier, you have two decades in education. Mm-hmm. When you look back on that, how do you think you've grown in your approach to providing student-centered learning experiences? Uh, In addition to the salmon work, do one or two other examples come to mind? Yeah, I I mean, I think a lot of the things that I currently do fit that niche, but I'm kind of thinking back more to my elementary time and some of the projects that we um, did. And at one point... um, I was part of a technology-rich grant to prove that technology was a good idea in the classroom, and we were trying to um, basically, we weren't in a one-to-one device mode at that point. This was around 2010, and um, but we were, you know, we, we, of course, had computers in the buildings for testing and stuff like that, and then, or if you could commandeer the cow and do a project or something, um, but... At that point, um, we received some grant funding and we were trying to prove a two to one model. So if two kids shared a device, what could they actually do? And and we took it further too. like, what if four kids had one computer to share? What would the roles be in a cooperative learning experience that involved choice and et cetera? And so um, that particular year, I was already doing like learning workstations, especially in language arts, like the literacy workstations, but we kind of took that to the next level with technology. And so some really powerful um, partnerships with students came up through that, especially um, with varying needs. So one of my favorite partnerships was like a, a labeled tag kid and a labeled sped kid. And they, with the knowledge of the kiddo who maybe didn't have the academic skills combined with the skills of this other kid and their interest of a topic that was similar. And I actually can't tell you what the topic was, but I remember the beautiful partnership and just seeing both of those kids shine and help each other and be able to produce this amazing, um, you know, they were doing 
like mini podcasts at that point and um, doing, we were doing some recording. So they were doing their report about whatever, and they were able to do all of their own research and everything, you know. And so that led us into, though, a really big project called Rock Our World. And it was a global collaboration with o- over 50 countries across the world. And we used technology to do that. And that particular year, it was focused on where your food comes from. And mm-hmm. we had, a, we still at Chavez have a um, school garden that I started my first year there and it's still going. And so we were able to connect our garden with an ecology unit, with nutrition. Um, and um, we got out to the farm. We went out to uh, the wetland ecosystem too. And we were comparing those things. But then we ultimately were creating a music like little uh, music clips and sharing them with our group. So we had like five other people in our group. We would each have a 30 second clip of music and it all came together to make a song. And then we also participated in creating a music video with a band that had, we were all in that called Life You Got, which was super cool. So it just was an example of integrating every single thing that we were doing in the day into that project. And every kid was so ridiculously engaged with that, you know, authentic audience, obviously. Um, But our kids, a lot of the kids there had significant needs. So, you know, there are a lot of behaviors or IEPs or all kind ELD, all the things were happening. And every kid was able to shine in that, you know, just where they were at and they grew so much. And it, it was, you know, and we ended up doing the project again, the next year, it wasn't nearly as dynamic as that particular year. But um, yeah, in fact, we had a, a, um, we, you know, it was very place-based, but we did have a rock our world night or whatever on 11, 11, um, 11. And it was essentially everyone from around the world came together in a platform that, and zoom didn't exist yet, but it was something similar. And we each like had our moment to like, say our thing our technology did not work we did not get our organ moment which was terrible i had to bottle like gracefully being disappointed because it was at night at school we had like all these classrooms of kids like oh, no. oh oregon where are you it was like ah um but that being said we i was able to connect with many local um food um creators here in town and so we had um, smoked salmon donated from the fisherman's market and all these, you know, food from organically grown co-op, like fruits and vegetables or all the, you know, tofu pate from the tofu palace. And so we had like a smorgasbord of our local foods um, mm-hmm. at, at, as like a culminating event. And so just those are the kind of projects like talk about a lifelong memory. I will never forget that. I'm pretty sure the kids will not be forgetting that anytime soon. And and in fact, um, one of the students that was involved just messaged me yesterday and she is um, on a, she didn't reference that, but she referenced the green team that I ran while I was in the building um, and, and just cli- climate activism. And she wrote her college. Um, she's actually in the running for a couple of years of research um, paid mm-hmm. for through her college. And um, she wrote about her green team and climate experience with me from elementary for that. So that's cool. And I can't wait to read it. I hope she shares it. So, Yeah, we know the the seeds that we're planting and how they uh, fruit later on is really, really exciting yeah. to yeah. Get, get glimpses of. 
Yeah. You just never know. So yeah, it's all the things matter. <laughs> well, I've got one more question for you this morning, uh, which is if you were mentoring yourself as an early career teacher, what advice or perspective might you give to help your younger self provide more student-centered curriculum and learning experiences? Ooh, that's a good one. Um, because I started later and I had such great mentors, I started off on a pretty good keel with that. Um, but I, what I would say, I guess, is the most important things are every day is a new day. And you can't assume that a kid is always going to be a certain way or, or, or a whatever. And if you don't really know them, you don't really know who you're actually teaching. And so I think that building a community of learners is number one, and then you can go a million miles with them. But if every student doesn't feel that they're completely included and a part of, a real part of the community, you lose some people along the way and it can end up being kind of more of a negative experience. And sometimes, I mean, not sometimes, all the time, kids are bringing their own stories to the space. And if we are trying to fit all of them into the box, sometimes we need to like knock a side out is uh, the big idea because every kid deserves to be seen and heard and see themselves in, in their learning. And um, we are powerful in our roles in helping um, achieve that in our communities. And so I find that that is a number one. I mean, I, I think that never make assumptions and, um, you know, try to get at the root of what, what's happening. If um, And I guess I'm just speaking from like a behavior stance because there's a lot of that talk and that's what's happening right now in a lot of our schools. And being in a school that did have a lot of high behaviors at that time, it, it's more common now in all schools to be um, running across some kids that are struggling and might not have the appropriate ways to channel that. And so the more that you can connect and get them to trust you and really be there for them, I think that, um, yeah, it could, you could end up making a student have the best year that they ever had in their experience and maybe the only one that they have. And I definitely have had that feedback from some of my students. And so I, I feel grateful that I had such good mentorship ahead of time to understand, um, you know, just being a guide on the side and how to help kids not only learn the academic portion, but how to be upstanding citizens in their communities and on the planet, because um, we got to lift them so they can help us lift everybody else. So, hmm. Well, it's been such a pleasure talking to you today, Tana. Thank you so much. If you don't mind, I'll send you away with a little song. Oh, great. All right, Tana. Have a wonderful day. You too. Thanks. Thanks so much for hanging out. Of course. For more OEA professional learning opportunities, visit our webpage at grow.oregoned.org.